J.T. Ellison has sold millions of psychological thrillers all around the world, nearly 30 countries. But her latest book, Her Dark Lies, is a gothic spine chiller featuring international billionaires and a mysterious first wife. Does that kind of sound familiar? It should do because it's a retelling of Daphne du Maurier's classic page turner, Rebecca. Welcome to the joys of binge reading the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading Today, JT talks about writing Her Dark Lies, about the Nashville thriller series with homicide detective Taylor Jackson that made her name, and co-hosting an Emmy Award-winning books podcast. A full transcript of our chat, plus links to JT's books and media, can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Come on by and leave us your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from you. But now, here's JT. Hello there, JT, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Look, JT, you've sold or you've um, published millions of books in 28 countries. You've won awards. You're share hosting an Emmy Award TV show about books. You sound as if you're really on the top of the mountaintop. Now, your chosen space is domestic noir and psychological thrillers. And I'm quite interested in, in how you differentiate between those two things and whether readers look for something specifically different in the two domestic noir and psychological thriller categories. It's such a fantastic question because... Yes, I think there is a difference between the two. I think they overlap very, very nicely. But I think the domestic noir is is exactly that. It is domestic. It is something that is is very personal and very individual. It's imagine, you know, your neighbor, you chat in the street and then your neighbor goes inside their house and they close the door. And you just never really know what's happening behind those closed doors. That, to me, is the epitome of the domestic noir. The psychological thriller, that's broader in my mind. I feel like that encompasses more uh, professionals in the, in the field, whether it's a policeman or a private detective or you know anything along those lines that would bring in an element of law enforcement. I think that has a part to do with it, though that can obviously appear in domestic noir. But the, uh, the other thing is that it's probably a slightly bigger canvas. It's not necessarily just what's happening inside that house. It's what's happening inside that house that's affecting all the people around it. So it just, it gets a little bit bigger, a little bit broader. It can be a little more twisted. You can bring in different points of view. I think more of the domestic noirs, are they're going to be in first person. A lot of them, they're going to be very, it's going to be very personal. And uh, a, a psychological thriller is going to have multiple points of view, and it's going—it's just going to be a little bit bigger. That's my theory. I may be completely wrong. <laughs> now, could we say that initially your 
series books were more in the psychological thriller category. And now with these standalones that you've been working on, and we'll talk about your latest one, Her Dark Lies, in in very short moment, they are more the domestic noir sort of area. Is that right? So you've moved a little bit from psychological thriller into the domestic noir. I have. I've I've flipped the page. So the first number of books I did were from the law enforcement perspective. There were victims, obviously, that things happened to, and I might even be in their heads and, and be explaining it, but the predominant characters were the the police, Taylor Jackson, Samantha Owens, the Britain, the FBI series, all of those. That came from the law enforcement point of view. When I started doing standalones, that I walked inside the door and imagined what it would be like for the policeman to come to my door instead of me being the policeman knocking on the door. It was just a complete flip of the script. And they're a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot. I was having this conversation with my husband the other day that heroes in, in thrillers, they're immortal, right? You know, because it's a series, that the hero is not going to die. In, in the suspense genre, all, all bets are off. It's very possible that the main character is going to be killed. It's entirely possible that somebody close to them is going to be killed. It, it's just a different, it's just a slightly different take on things, just from the other side of the door. Yeah. Now, I loved the description that I read of one reviewer of Her Dark Lies. They compared it to Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca as a kind of gothic story. And I think that there were, that really hit the nail in terms of some of the parallels. It's a a creepy story about a family of international billionaires. Of course, they have to be somebody like the Jeff Bezos of this world, but they're destroyed from the inside. and, And there's all sorts of stuff going on on the inside. And some of the voices at the time, you're not quite sure who it is that's speaking. There's mystery behind some of the voices. And I wondered, was Rebecca anywhere there in the background when you were conceiving of this story? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite books. I, I've i read it, a, I don't know how many times I've read it, but I reread it and I actually listened to it this time. I did it on audio. And there were a couple of things that truly stood out to me. And one was the choice that Du Maurier makes that Rebecca is dead in that in that story that that she's that she is dead and how she's died and all of that and that really got into my head and I started thinking about how that would be to be marrying somebody whose wife has died and and they don't necessarily know exactly what's happened and that was definitely my springboard into this story I was very interested at the end of it in the acknowledgements you talk a little bit about the circumstances surrounding your initial inspiration for the story and then you sort of indicate that it might have been quite a difficult birth to get it all to pull together and it's extremely intricately plotted so I wondered if you could just give us a bit of an idea of that process from conception to delivery. You know I think I started with this being more of a retelling of Rebecca than anything else and that's not that's not what the book was, and that's not what the book wanted to be, but that's kind of where I set myself up. It was a really difficult 
book to write. It was one of the hardest books I've ever written. Uh, I had two knee surgeries while I was writing it. So I had surgery brain. So, you know, we can chalk it up up a little bit. (laughs) But there was just something elusive about the characters. And I couldn't land on their names. I changed their names multiple times because none of the names would work. And when you've written a manuscript with somebody you don't know because their name just doesn't set with you, that's really, really hard. So it was it was not until I finally figured out, okay, her name is Claire. That's her name. Okay. Then I was able to actually finish the book. And I, I you know, it just, it was a 14-month book. It never takes me that long to write a book, but this one did. And, you know, every book is different. Every story is different. There are seven versions of this book living on my on my computer. Not seven drafts, seven versions. <laughs> so I, I <laughs> missed the mark several times before I finally hit the story and, and it came together for me. I was getting ready to walk away from it. Wow. Sometimes it doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. Have you walked away from many books ever? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I've put things down for a little while. And, and and worked on other things. Uh, several of the standalones, especially the first ones that I was writing on spec, I was I was writing in between other books. And you know, oh, I've got a month until the next revision is due. I'm going to work on this. So there was a little bit of that. But I've never planned to just abandon a story. I mean, it, it, this is my I'm writing now my 25th book. So this is my 24th novel. That's pretty good that out of out of all that, there's only really been one that I was just going to throw up my hands. But I, uh, it was in the middle of the pandemic, and we, we got away. We went and house sat, and the change of scenery, everything clicked. And sometimes, sometimes that's just what you need. You just need a different environment. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Look, you made your name with... Um, thriller series fiction, as we've discussed, and your homicide detective in Nashville, Taylor Jackson, she's one of your most popular heroines. I gather you've worked very closely with the Nashville police, including sitting on on post-mortems, which seemed to me almost, you know, a a sort of beyond the call of duty. (laughs) Is that one of the hardest things that you've done in your research? Yes, hands down. Hands down. I, I did a number of ride-alongs with the police, with Metro Homicide, with Overnight Patrol. I've talked to the FBI. I've toured facilities. I've worked with the New York field office. The one thing I hadn't done was an in-person autopsy. I'd done online ones, which are incredibly helpful, but I had never done the, the actual sit down in person and do it. And, you know, I was terrified. And I was worried, I I was afraid there would be somebody my father's age or a child. What I didn't know is they don't just do one autopsy at a time. They do multiple autopsies at once. And of course, there was a man my dad's age and there was a child and there was a woman my age and there was a teenager. And it was just both horrifying and fascinating and possibly the most spiritual experience I have ever had because I was so terrified at the beginning. I mean, I wouldn't even get near the bodies. I was on the other side of the room. And by the end, I literally had my head looking inside a person. And I I dare anybody who doesn't believe that there is a higher power to look inside somebody 
and realize we're all just little machines. We're all exactly the same inside. So there is something that makes us who we are, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it. And I, I absolutely believe that. And it, it really was horrible and wonderful at the same time. I'm not going wow. to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that's an, that's an amazing thing. Uh, all I could imagine was the horrible smells. Did that bother you? It didn't smell. I mean, that's you know, relatively. This is terrible. Fresh bodies don't smell. They only really smell if they've been decomposing. And these these were not decomposed bodies. These were. I was know, thinking more of the formaldehyde, sort of just the very. It. I mean, it mm. smells no more than a lab than than anything mm. else. It yeah. was very clean. Yeah. It was bright. It was. It was not. It was the exact opposite of everything you would imagine. Everything you've seen on TV is not right. <laughs> so it's 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 worth doing. I wrote a I wrote a whole piece about it on my blog called "I See Dead People," uh, little tongue in cheek there. But it was it was truly a formative experience for me, and I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad. Look, we we always put links to things that are mentioned in our podcast, so I'll look out that blog and we'll put a link to it because oh, I'm sure thing. there are people who might be interested in seeing a fuller account of that. I found it fascinating. Look, you mentioned that you did a Brit in the FBI series. So you co-authored that with Catherine Coulter, who already has bestseller FBI series that she's writing. How did that co-authoring come about? And which one of you got to do the Brit part? And was that difficult? (laughs) The Brit part's the fun part. So Catherine was looking for a co-writer because she had a series idea, a Brit in the FBI, that she wanted to do. And as it happens, I'm at her agency. So that worked out very nicely. Her agent mentioned it to my agent. My agent mentioned it to me. And I, you know, I, I wasn't planning to do co-writing, but this is Catherine Coulter. She's a legend. I've been reading her my whole life. So I said, absolutely, throw my name in the hat. Throw my hat in the ring throw my hat in the ring. (laughs) And then I didn't hear anything for a couple of months and I figured that wasn't happening. So I, I had just done a new deal with Mira, my, my regular publisher for, for new books. And literally that deal closed on Friday. And on Monday morning, I got a call that said, you're about to get a job offer. And then the phone rang and it was Catherine. And all I can remember is within two minutes, I was laughing hysterically because she's really funny. And we just took off from there. So the the process, every co-writing team has a different process. We, I would go out to her house in California and we would spend the week plotting out the book. I brought it back to Nashville and drafted it, talking to her regularly and, you know, about what's going on. Here's where I am. You know, oh, this isn't working the way we thought. Let's fix it. And then when I finished the draft, I would give it back to her because I don't, I'm not good at doing pages, having them looked at and having them be finalized. Well, I can't see the whole story until the whole story is there. So she was very gracious to to let me do do it my way. And it worked out really well. So I give her a draft. She'd edit it, send it back to me. I'd edit that. She'd take one more pass and then we would turn it in. And that that worked really, really well. We did six books in the series and it was a blast. I, I did yeah. a lot of the British. She did a lot of the British. She's got she's got family there. I um 
I'm fascinated and love England and Scotland. And so I spend a lot of time there. I, I, yeah, it's, it's not hard. That's not hard. It's hard not to have British characters in my books, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Turning a bit from now from the specific books to your wider career, uh, you had quite a fascinating time before you even turned your attention to being a full-time author. And I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a potted biography of that period. You worked full-time in politics before you went back to what had always been, I think, your first love, the idea of writing. How did that experience, the non-writing experience, feed into your writing? You know, I don't, that's a hard question because everything we do forms us into the person we are, right? And so without that, we can't be the writer that we are. But everything I did was nothing related to what I do now. I I went to school thinking I was going to be a writer and I was going to get an MFA and and Master of Fine Arts, which is is the degree that professional writers get. I just used air quotes around the professional writers. Just (laughs) a lot of professional writers do not have MFAs, but I didn't know that at the time. So my professor, my thesis advisor, said that I wasn't good enough to get published. So I listened to her and did not go to get an MFA and instead got a master's degree in political management and worked in the White House and Department of Commerce and then went to work uh, for an aerospace company doing marketing. And, you know, all of those experiences were great, but I hated it. (laughs) All of them, I hated them. I felt, I just felt trapped with everything I was doing. I was chafing at the bit. I don't do well with authority. And so having somebody telling me what to do is very, very difficult for me. And it just, it was a really hard time. It was very fun. I mean, working in the White House is obviously never a bad thing, right? But I was very young and I was very idealistic. And I finally realized, wow, I am not going to change the world doing this. I can make really great tea, but I'm, I'm just not going <laughs> to change the world. And and by then I had met my husband. I met him the first night of classes in graduate school. So I'm not so upset about the MFA versus the master's in poli-sci. But we, uh, we had decided to move back to Nashville where he's from. And we moved here and I turned into like the worst country music song. My cat died. I didn't have any friends. Kept getting lost going around town. I couldn't find a job. And I was just total sad person case, just really bad. <laughs> and I told my husband, I'm like, I, I want to try this again. And in the meantime, I had had back surgery and had been reading John Sanford, who is just, I'm sure everybody's heard of him and read him. His Lucas Davenport praise series just really, really turned my crank. And I said, I want to try this. And my husband said, go for it. He never once said, don't. He, from the very first time I brought it up, said, I think you should do it. Go for it, which was an incredible blessing. I did. I typed that first paragraph. I hit period and I burst into tears because I was finally home and I was back where I was supposed to be. And I haven't looked back since. Was that a Holly Jackson book? It was. It was a Taylor Jackson. It was the very first oh, sorry, one. Sorry, Taylor Jackson. Taylor yeah, Jackson. Yeah. It, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it's what became what is now Field of Graves. It was called a couple of different things, and I wrote it. I, I wrote in a vacuum. I was such a. 
I was such a naive kid. I didn't know anything about the publishing industry, right? I didn't know that there were publishing awards and, and organizations for writers. I mean, I wrote that entire book in a vacuum, got a copy of the, the literary guide and started sending it all over New York, found out, oh yeah, this isn't actually a novel. This is only a novella. <laughs> and there's nothing special about it. I had a couple of people say, you know, you're a good writer, but there's just nothing special about this, nothing unique. And wow, you know, that was hard. But I took all of that advice and I started doing research into the industry and I got hooked up with a couple of people and I went to an author signing, John Connolly, the Irish writer, John Connolly. I went to his author signing in Nashville. It was the very first time I had met another author he was so incredibly kind and so incredibly encouraging. And he told me, all good books find a home. And that, that was what I went back to the page with. I rewrote the book into a full-length novel. It got me an agent. It didn't sell. My agent said, write me another book. And I did. That was all the pretty girls. And that sold almost the night that we sent it out. We got an email from Linda McFall at Mira said, don't sell this to anybody else. And they bought it a three book deal. And that's, that's the story. I mean, it's, I just never, you know, I, I never had to look back after that. It was wonderful. It's sad that that one academic person who probably had never written a book on her life anyway, should have given you such a definitive uh, opinion about your work earlier on, isn't it? Although, I mean, it all came right in the end, but. It did, you know, she probably was right at that time. I probably wasn't good enough, but oh my gosh, what would have happened if she had said, you know what, you're not good enough right now. So keep mm. at it. And that was mm. not the message that I got at all. Mm. It was, mm. you just mm. aren't what they're looking for. I've got papers, I, literally in my filing cabinet, I have a paper where another one of my English professors wrote on a short story, reads too much like B-grade detective fiction. <laughs> well, I've now made a career out of B-grade detective fiction, so nanny nanny boo boo, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's all Yes, I think that a lot of writers find that academic literary courses aren't the way to get into genre fiction. That's the other thing, isn't it? Right. And if, I mean, if you love genre fiction, that's where you should be focusing your efforts. You don't have to write, you know, literary is just another genre. You know, it yeah. really is. Yeah. But, yeah. oh, it just, they wanted me to write a certain way. And I, again, with the whole authority thing, I couldn't make myself do what they wanted. I had a very distinct voice. I still do. I mean, you can read papers that I wrote when I was a kid and you can hear that voice. It, it's always been there. So Yes. Look, just tracking back, I'm curious, which president was in the White House when you were working there? Papa Bush. Ah, uh -huh. Papa yeah. Bush. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was. I, I'm. I'm old. <laughs> we were in D.C. when I was a kid. Oh, I was such a such a young girl. My mom worked in in the Reagan White House, so that was it. Was the natural extension. So, were you there with Kuwait? Was that Kuwait? Was that Senior Bush? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was not there during that. I was in. I was still in school because I went back and forth. Okay. I yeah. I yeah. interned uh, several semesters before I graduated and got a job. And I was we were he was only in office for another year when I was there. But 
I was at school and I did get a phone call from somebody who was in the know that said, you want to turn on CNN, something major is about to happen. And I turned it on and I hit tape. And so I've got us rolling over the border on a VHS tape somewhere back in the day. Look, as we mentioned at the beginning, you also host an Emmy awarding TV series, you share hosting of it, A War on Words on Nashville TV. And I'm just interested, how did that opportunity arise? So A Word on Words is the, it's been on the air for over 40 years. John Siegenthaler was the one who started it with Nashville Public Television. And every Sunday morning, he would interview authors and it was a 30-minute in-studio show. John's amazing. He was absolutely astounding. He read all of those books. He was so incredible at, at bringing people in and pulling out their stories and when he passed away, the station didn't want the series to, to go away. So they reimagined it as something called an interstitial, which is, we call it the show between the shows. So it's we have a short piece of it that shows about three minutes of us interviewing the author. And then we have a transcript of the full 30-minute episode that you can go and read. It is, it's incredible. And to have been asked to carry on the literary legacy that John Siegenthaler has left in this city was absolutely one of the biggest honors of my life. And I love it. We're six seasons in right now, and we are just having a ball. And I get to read books that I wouldn't necessarily read. Obviously, I like crime fiction. I like thrillers. So I get to read much more broadly. And that's done nothing but great things for me as a reader and me as a writer. And yeah, me as a person. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Look, talk, talking about your career a little bit, is there one thing that you've done as far as your writing career is, a, is considered more than any other that's been the secret of your success? Is there one thing you think, oh, that's really how I, how I came to break through? Maybe that I don't feel like I've broken through. somebody was telling me yesterday hey you've arrived and I'm like no I haven't I have not arrived I don't ever feel like I've arrived and so I think that probably has a lot to do with my ambition to try to to be a better writer and be a better person and be a a better reader and and bring more to my stories I never want to write the same book twice I I love the challenge of coming up with something unique and different. And, you know, I keep my head down and I do my work. And I think that's, you know, really more of it. It's a job. It's the best job in the world, but it's a job. And I show up. I'm the one authority figure that I don't want to defy. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me, what do you enjoy most about that job? And what do you dislike most? I love that moment where I look up and it's been two or three hours and I have several thousand words and the story has gone in a direction that I had no idea was going to happen. You know, when I when I end up in a place that I wasn't aware of, I'm not a big outliner, but I usually have a pretty good idea of what's going on. But when I go off in a totally new direction and I've been in that flow, in that zone, that's fantastic rivaled only by receiving emails or letters from people saying that 
the book took them out of themselves for a moment. You know, uh, I, I, I got something recently, somebody's mother was dying and she read one of my books while she sat with her mother in hospice and, and said it lifted her away from the situation. I can't think of a higher compliment to pay an author that, that I was able to, you know, create something that, that gave her some respite. That's incredible. Mm. Mm. What I hate, what do I not like? I don't like the word hate. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to say that again. What I don't like about writing are those moments when the book is just not working, when you're not connecting with the material, like what happened with her dark lies. That was, that was agonizing for me that I just couldn't get to know my characters. They wouldn't reveal themselves. And so you're kind of banging your hammer against the rock, hoping something will chisel away and it doesn't. And sometimes, you know, there are days like that. There are months like that, that, that just sometimes mm. it just doesn't work. And I'm, I'm much too stubborn to let that stand. <laughs> <laughs> Turning to JT as reader, this is the joys of binge reading. And we particularly like to focus on books that are going to be entertaining, that are going to take people outside of their normal worlds for a, for a time. And I think, honestly, the last 12 months, I think there's been quite a, a boom in that kind of reading because people do want to be a little bit more lighthearted and escapist. Are you a binge reader and who would you like to recommend in that way? I, I am a huge reader of anything, anything I can get my hands on, right? So uh, I am a huge, huge binge reader. The The series that I think is probably my favorite is Daniel Silva's Gabrielle Alon. That is one that I really, really make time for no matter what. If there is a new Gabriel Alon book, I am marking that day off on the calendar and sitting down and reading it. Same with Diana Gabaldon. Anytime one of her books comes out, that's it. Don't even bother. Victoria Schwab is another one that, oh goodness, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is a masterpiece. It truly is to see an author of her age, she's so young to have written a book so wise and so moving. It's, it's incredible. And I, I, I loved it. I could, I mean, I have a few books to talk about. <laughs> I'm, cur- I'm reading The Push by Ashley Audrain right now, which is wonderful. My my laptop is sitting on top of The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins and uh, JL's Wings of Ebony and Alex Bracken's Lore. Anything that Lee Bardugo does, I am there for. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I can go on and on and on. Oh, that's lovely. You also belong to quite a few writer organizations, don't you? Yeah, th- International Thriller Writers and Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime. Sisters in Crime, is that's the first organization I joined, and I was in their guppies group, which is for unpublished writers to meet each other and talk, and that, I swear, the guppies, that's the reason I got published. I mean, I was able to elevate my my work to the level that, a New York publisher looked at it and said, oh, okay, now there's something special here. So that's all on them. Look, we're coming to the end of our time together, JT, but we might like to look back down this tunnel of time, circling around at the at this stage in your career, 
if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Gosh, I think if I were looking back, I would tell myself that it's okay to say no, because I don't do a really good job of saying no. I want everyone, I want everyone to be happy. I want to help everybody. I have a tendency to over yes. <laughs> I'm a yes woman. And I would definitely try to set some boundaries for myself earlier on so that I I was able to learn how to say no easily and comfortably and not feel bad when I did it. So that's that's definitely something that I would I would redo if I had a chance. And is that related to your actual career decisions or more like saying yes to having people over to dinner and that kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's definitely more on the <laughs> career side of things. I mean, that's there's a lot that goes into writing a novel that has nothing to do with writing a novel. And uh, one of my favorite productivity guys, he's a more of a philosopher, his name is Cal Newport, and he talks about deep work a lot. And I spend a lot of time doing that and, and thinking about how I can spend my time, my creative time on my creativity. And he said on his podcast just a couple of days ago that it's very interesting. The better you are at your job, the more people want you to do things that are not what you're good at with your job. And that really lands for me in a number of ways. I mean, I've done a lot of things from the very beginning, blogging, setting up social networks, being a social butterfly, doing all of those things that are more loyalty builders than they are necessarily to sell books. But if I could have spent a little more time on my creative endeavors, what would that have looked like, right? Would I have another couple of books? I know I've written 25 books and that's that's wonderful, right? Could I have written 30 if I wasn't doing a lot of other things? So it's it's a it's a hypothetical exercise to go back to anything and try to change it. I really wouldn't change a lot because I love where I am and I love the career that I have and I love the readers that I have. But but maybe I wouldn't done quite so many of the, you know, the external to my creativity things. And have you cut back a bit on those as your career has advanced? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I feel like there's, I'm actually working on that right now. There's, I feel like there's an expectation of I've always done this. Why would I stop it? Right. I've always blogged. Why would I stop blogging? I blog for myself, really, but there comes a point where it's like, uh, if I'm spending an hour putting together a blog versus I could be spending an hour working on the manuscript, the balance of that, it, it, it sometimes feels out of balance for me. And so when I start feeling that way, I, I pull back and I do everything I can to balance myself out so that it's 90% creativity, 10% nonfiction Sometimes it gets 50-50 when you get into a book launch and then it's it's like 100% nonfiction and no creativity. But that's that's to be expected. But it's the off times that I think it's really important to protect your time, protect your creative time and learn how to say no to things that sound really fun at the moment, but maybe you're going to have a larger impact on what you do down the road. Look, I'm sure that many, many writers would very much sympathize and and agree with what you've just said. Look, looking ahead to the next 12 months, we've had a very disrupted past 12 months with this pandemic. Hopefully we're going to smooth out a little now that there's vaccine available. 
What will your next 12 months look like? What projects are you working on? I am, of course, writing another book. That's what I'm always doing. And it's a standalone. And I'm not going to tell you what it's about because it's, even though I'm halfway through, I'm I'm very I'm very attached to this story. It has a lot of personal components for me. And so I haven't figured out how exactly I want to talk about it. So I'm not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm writing the novel. I just finished a short story that is going to come out at the end of the year in an anthology that Suspense Magazine has done. And it's a really cool anthology. It's all female thriller authors. It's thematic. There's a number that needs to, everybody had to have a number in their story. And a lot of the proceeds are going, some of the char- proceeds are going to charity for, I I believe breast cancer research. I may be wrong. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. And that's a really, really cool. It was a really cool project and it was a big creative departure for me, the story that I wrote. And I'm, I'm very excited to have that out there. And then, you know, actually from, from, (laughs) you know, from one day to the next, I never quite know what I'm doing, but I do know I've got some other projects that are in the works that I highly recommend people stick around and pay attention to because there's going to be some fun announcements coming. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Look, I know you enjoy hearing from your readers. Where can they find you online? So I'm, as I mentioned, Social Butterfly. My (laughs) main, though, the main things that I do, I've got a newsletter that you can subscribe to on jtellison.com. And I'm my handle is Thriller Chick on Twitter and Instagram. I have a wonderful private group on Facebook where we talk about books and life and all kinds of interesting things. And that's called JT Ellison's Literati. And you can get to that from my website or through my main Facebook page. But I spend most of my time on Instagram and the newsletter and in the Literati. Listen, that's fantastic. And we'll put links to all of those um, places where people can reach you in the show notes for this episode. So they'll be there online forevermore. Look, JT, thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking. Jenny, it's been a delight. Thank you for having me. And we'll watch for those future announcements with anticipation. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Lots to do. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted 
and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.